Thanks, Helen, and good morning, everyone. Good to see you here, and uh, good to have you joining us online for those who are also feeling a bit crook and have done the right thing and stayed home. Uh, thanks for joining us there, too. Uh, well, just over the last few weeks, uh, Caitlin and I have resumed watching Band of Brothers. It's a little while since we've uh, watched through it before, uh, watched through it, but uh, one of the things I was noticing was uh, just how intense it is to be a paratrooper in World War II. Uh, they were training to be dropped behind enemy lines into hostile territory and how to operate there. In one episode, as they're uh, heading into the Ardennes forest for the Battle of the Bulge, uh, someone says to uh, one of the leaders of, enemy, uh, of Easy Company, you know, the Germans, they're about to cut the road off to the south. You're going to be surrounded. And the reply was, we're paratroopers. We're supposed to be surrounded. It's just what they trained for, how to operate in a hostile environment and how to carry out the mission, uh, even when they're surrounded by hostile forces. And there's something similar about that vibe to what Jesus wants his disciples to consider in this passage. I'll be gone and you'll be in hostile territory. So what do you need to keep in mind to keep operating in the midst of hostility? We've been working our way through John's biography of Jesus. Uh, over the last few weeks, we particularly zoomed into Jesus' farewell discourse, this extended block of teaching where Jesus is priming his disciples uh, just before he's crucified to help them understand what's about to happen and what life will be like after he's gone. And last week, we saw Jesus telling his disciples they needed to be fruitful, and the key was to keep dwelling on meditating on, seeking to obey his words. And that would look like loving each other. Through the ups and downs of their relationships, the joys and the strains, they were to keep loving each other with a self-sacrificial love. But there was also an outward-facing element to bearing fruit. Uh, that as they kept dwelling on, meditating on, seeking to obey Jesus' words, they would face hostility from the world. Much like Easy Company in World War II, they would be operating in hostile territory. The question is, well, how are they meant to operate? And it's a question that's just as relevant for us today too. We can find ourselves in all sorts of territory that can seem hostile, whether it's just the general vibe of the culture we inhabit, maybe particular pressures of the workplace, or even in our homes. What does it look like? to live as faithful disciples of Jesus in the face of hostility. Uh, and in fact, even if you're, if you're not a Christian here today or if you're having a, question, a discussion with people about what we looked at at church uh, and they're not Christian, maybe a, a discussion starter would be, you know, how do you respond to you know, hostility, whether it's uh, coldness or uh, attitude or aggression, how do you respond to hostility regarding something that you think is important and why do you respond that way? That could be a good discussion starter question. Um, but we're going to consider this passage under four big points. They're there in the outline. Uh, as we work our way through the passage, we're going to look at testify, expect casualties for your good, uh, before we finally think about uh, life in a hostile territory today. Uh, so first, Jesus signals to the disciples that in the midst of a hostile world, their mission is testify. It was there in verse 26. When the advocate comes, who I will send you from the Father, the spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And you also must testify, for you have been with me 
from the beginning. Like I said just before this, in verses 18 to 25, Jesus has been describing the attitude to expect from a hostile world if his disciples hold on to Jesus. And just after he teases out some of the realities uh, that they will experience, he gives them this command. Surrounded by hostility, Jesus calls the disciples to testify. Throughout John, there's been this kind of a running courtroom theme. You know, the word testify, it has a bit of a legal flavour. Advocate uh, was a title that was used of someone who would speak on your behalf in a legal case. Uh, There is a significance, this, this weightiness of what the disciples are being called to do. In the midst of a hostile, uh, a world that's hostile to Jesus and his followers, uh, Jesus says, well, first, God's spirit will testify about Jesus. And that actually, it coheres with what Jesus has been teaching about the Holy Spirit up until now in, in this uh, block of teaching. We've seen previously that God would send another advocate to be with them uh, back in 1415, implying the spirit was coming to continue the work that Jesus was doing. And we've seen that the Spirit would remind the disciples of what Jesus had taught them, finishing what Jesus had started back in 1426. And here we see that the Spirit also has a role towards the world that rejects Jesus and his disciples. In the midst of a world that's hostile to Jesus, God's Spirit will testify about Jesus. But it's not just the Spirit. The disciples also are to testify to Jesus. In the face of hostility, the disciples are to testify, to keep telling people about who Jesus is and what he has done. Now, given what we've seen in the previous chapters about the Spirit, the disciples' testimony, it's not independent of the Spirit because it's the Spirit who's going to remind them of what Jesus taught them and help them to understand Jesus' teaching. And here we see part of the purpose of that is so that they might accurately present Jesus to the world. So there's actually great comfort here for the disciples as they keep telling people about Jesus. They can know, it's not just them telling people about Jesus, but actually God himself. And it's important to remember that this mission and who is working along, uh, along, alongside them and in them, uh, it's important to remember that because as they continue this mission they're going to face casualties. They need to expect casualties. That's point two. We're looking at verses one to five of chapter 16. See, as Jesus departs and his disciples start attracting the hatred of the world that was directed at Jesus because now the disciples are the ones representing Jesus, they need to understand there's going to be consequences and it's going to be painful. I mean, just stop and think about what Jesus says they're going to face how much pain and anguish it would cause them, you know, put out of the synagogue, the heart of the Jewish community, and you know, as a result, losing relationships with friends, relatives, business contacts. Being put out of the synagogue would just destroy the life that you knew. But more than that, some people would seek to kill the disciples and think they were doing God's work. And you don't need to go very far to see this sort of thing happening. I mean, already in John's Gospel, we've seen that the Pharisees, the religious public opinion shapers of Jesus' day, they'd threatened to put out of the synagogue anyone who said Jesus was the Christ. And despite Jesus' death and resurrection, his victory and rule, Jesus says, that's going to continue. 
And then it wasn't long after Jesus' death and resurrection that James, the brother of John, who wrote the biography of Jesus we're looking at, he was killed by King Herod to appease the Jews that he ruled over. That's in Acts 12, 1 to 2. And while the records of some individual disciples are more reliable than others, as far as we can tell, it seems that all of them, except for John, were put to death for proclaiming that Jesus was the Christ, God's rescuing king. And even John was exiled and reported to have faced many other trials. The hostility that the disciples would face was genuine, it was costly, and it was terrible. They didn't need to know it before Jesus, uh, before because Jesus was with them. He, he kind of acted as the lightning rod of hostility. But now he was leaving. That wasn't going to be the case anymore. As they represent Jesus, that hostility would be redirected against him, uh, against them. And if Jesus is meant to be God's rescuing king, though, if he's meant to be in control, you know, that sort of thing could quite understandably cause you to question your trust in Jesus. But Jesus says he's warned them to expect these casualties so that they would keep trusting him. Because the alternative is far, far worse. Falling away from Jesus was a far worse outcome than any cost they might bear in this life, even the cost of their lives. Because trusting Jesus is the only way that sin could be dealt with and they could have life. The disciples need to expect these casualties because they are just the part and parcel of the path to life. But despite the hostility and the hardships that it will bring, Jesus wants disciple, his disciples to see that him departing is for their good. That's our third point uh, there from the second half of verse 5. None of you asks me, Jesus says, where are you going? Rather, you are filled with grief because I have said these things. But very truly I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Now, the really switched on or caffeinated amongst us might say, what is Jesus talking about here? You know, none of you asks me, where are you going? Because earlier in the very conversation that he's having, Simon Peter asked back in 1336, Lord, where are you going? But Jesus' explanation here in verse 6, it underlines the fact that previously, the question was really more an expression of the disciples' sense of grief at what Jesus was saying, that he was leaving, rather than seeking to understand what Jesus' departure would mean. And it's important that they understand what Jesus' departure would mean because it is for their good. It's for their good because God's spirit coming is dependent on Jesus' departure. Now, as we've gone through John, one of the things that we keep seeing is that Jesus is the Christ. He's God's rescuing king uh, who fulfills God's promises in the Old Testament. And the coming of God's spirit was another one of those things that faithful Israelites were looking for. Uh, we heard an example of that uh, in the first passage that Helen read out from Isaiah earlier. Uh, let me reread verse 3 to 4. And God says, For I will pour water on a thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They will spring up like grass in a meadow, like poplar trees by flowing streams. So in Isaiah, he was looking forward to a time when God's anger at sin had been dealt with and his life-giving spirit was poured out. 
so that as people's hearts were turned back to God, it would be reminiscent of spring grass springing up in a meadow after a rain or a healthy tree fed by fresh running water. God's spirit coming was something that God's people were looking forward to as part of God's plan. And Jesus leaving is good because Jesus says it's necessary for him to leave for God's spirit to come, for God's plans to continue to their fruition. But there's more. Jesus explains to the disciples what the role of the spirit will be in the midst of a hostile world. Firstly, the Spirit will convict the world, and secondly, the Spirit will guide the disciples in all truth. First, the Spirit will convict the world, verses 8 to 11. When he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin, because people do not believe in me. About righteousness, because I'm going to the Father, where you can no longer see me. And about judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. Part of the role of the Spirit is convicting the world. Uh, Now, the NIV version of the Bible that we use, uh, it's excellent, uh, though he will prove the world wrong, uh, is right, but it perhaps misses the sense that this isn't just an abstract legal finding. But as the Spirit takes over from Jesus, uh, he will convict the world. He will show the world that they are wrong so that they might repent. The world is guilty And it needs to repent. It's guilty regarding sin and righteousness and judgment. Uh, Now, the connection between those nouns and the explanation might seem a bit odd at first glance. But when we think about what Jesus has been teaching throughout John, I think what Jesus means is relatively clear. The Spirit will convict the world about sin, verse 9, because people don't believe in me. If people had believed in Jesus, they would have believed him when he said that they were sinners facing God's wrath and that the only way to be safe was to trust him. For example, chapter 8, verse 24, I told you that you would die in your sins. If you do not believe that I am he, you will indeed die in your sins. Uh, what's more, the, word that God, the work that God requires is to believe in the one that he's sent. The Spirit will convict the world about sin because people don't believe in Jesus. The Spirit will also convict the world about righteousness because he's going to the Father. Throughout Jesus' ministry, one of the questions that keeps getting raised is, who is righteous? Who is innocent? Who is right before God? And one of the things that Jesus has done is call out the world for its pretensions of righteousness, of right living. Particularly, we've seen in the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, for the inconsistent, hypocritical attitude they have towards living rightly. As Jesus goes to the Father, it proves that he was the righteous one and the world is not. Finally, the Spirit will convict the world about judgment because the prince of this world now stands condemned. See, Jesus has also described people as belonging to one of two spiritual families, one belonging to the Father, the other to Satan, the prince of this world. And as the cross leads to the prince of this world standing condemned, so too are those who are part of his family, who stood opposed to Jesus. The Spirit will convict the world about sin, about righteousness, and about judgment. These are just a continuation of Jesus' ministry. It continues the job that Jesus was doing. But it's not just about getting runs on the board. It's so that the world would see their guilt 
and repent. The Spirit will continue to do what Jesus is doing, convicting the world, and he's going to do it through the witness of Jesus' disciples as the Spirit guides them into truth. That's verse 12 to 15. When the Spirit comes, he will guide the disciples into truth. He'll help them to see and to understand what they're yet to grasp about Jesus' teaching. And we've seen examples of this already as we've gone through John. You know, little asides from the author, uh, like chapter 12, verse 16, John said uh, when Jesus rode into Jerusalem, he's like, at first the disciples did not understand this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realise that these things had been written about him and these things had been done to him. And just as Jesus wasn't an agent acting on his own initiative, he said what the Father had given him, neither will the Spirit be his own independent agent, but he'll speak only what he hears. Jesus says in verse 13, the Spirit will tell you what is yet to come and that he will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he'll make known to you. When Jesus does give the Spirit, he'll help them understand the events that from this current perspective are about to happen on the cross. Because as we've seen, it's the cross that will ultimately bring glory to Jesus and the Father as they rescue sinners and judge the world. And it's the Spirit who will do this glorifying as he makes known to the disciples what Jesus has given him, fleshing out the implications of what is about to happen on the cross. It's like the Spirit is going to be a spotlight on Jesus who will help the disciples understand what's really going on. And I mean, it's the funny thing about spotlights. You know, when they're doing their job, you kind of forget that they're doing anything. But, you know, when they disappear, <laughs> well, you suddenly notice their absence. Spotlights also take a little bit longer to turn on and warm up once you use them for a cheap sermon illustration. But you get the sense. I see, for those of us who are Christians who've kind of heard this for a long time, it can be odd hearing Jesus labour on about some of these points because we think, well, duh. But we have the benefit of having, uh, of having come after God has given his spirit. And these things have already been made clear through the testimony of the disciples in the scriptures. See, as Jesus prepares his disciples for life after he's gone, he makes sure that they know living in hostile territory will be hard. But the disciples are to keep testifying to Jesus recognising that as they do it, they'll expect hostility and they need to expect casualties. But despite the challenges, to keep testifying and to remember that his spirit is going about the same task, convicting people of their guilt before God so that they might have life in Jesus' name. Well, we've had a work through the passage, but what does it have to say to us today? We do need to do some careful thinking here because actually when you think about it, Jesus' instructions here and his promises, they're not in the first instance to us. Did you notice 1527? And you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. I haven't been with Jesus from the beginning of his earthly ministry. I, I wasn't with Jesus at the end of his earthly ministry. That's something particularly for the disciples. Or verse six, chapter 16, verse 2, they'll put you out of the synagogue. In fact, a time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they're offering service to God. You know, I have never lost a night of sleep concerned about being put out of a synagogue. I don't worry too much about being put to death here in Sydney for my faith. 
See, in the first instances, these promises and instructions are for the apostles. But it does still have something to say to us today. Firstly, it actually directs us to where we can have certainty that God's Spirit is speaking today. And actually, it's the same place that people in the first century Palestine, first century Palestine would have turned after Jesus' death and resurrection. It's the words of the apostles. In this passage, Jesus promised the Spirit to these disciples. Only for us, it's their written record. It's the Bible, the scriptures that we have. That is where we have uh, a certainty that God's Spirit is speaking today. I don't know what you expect a Spirit-empowered revelation from God to be like, but here Jesus says it's in the testimony of the apostles that will point people to Jesus. Be confident in your Bible that it is the true and sufficient spirit-empowered revelation of God so that you can know him and have life in Jesus' name. But second, you know, God hasn't given up on the world and the fact that we are here this morning gathered in the name of Jesus to listen to the scriptures is proof of that. Jesus' instruction here might not, uh, and to testify, might not be directly to us, but the implication is still that People who are following Jesus today are still called to bear testimony and to expect hostility so that others might have life in his name. We are here because people loved us enough to tell us about Jesus, to point us to the witness of the apostles so that we might recognise the depths of our sin and the condemnation we face, but that we can have life by trusting in Jesus. And if we trust Jesus, he calls us to testify still. There's plenty of different parts of our lives we could consider a bit more closely, but uh, two that I think will cover off uh, most of the hours in our life would be at home and at work. Uh, testifying to Jesus at home, I think, is one of the hardest things we can do. Um, I'm a little bit nervous about uh, this application point. I, I think it's true, but you know, talking about Parents and kids and some of the challenges that we face always feels a little bit fraught. So uh, please, uh, please feel free to continue the conversation later. Uh, but I'm convinced that this is true. Uh, I am tremendously encouraged at how many people in this congregation I hear take an active involvement in pointing their kids to Jesus. Uh, it's something I'm very thankful for. And I know that for many of us, it is hard. As we point family members to Jesus, we face a range of responses uh, that can range from indifference uh, to attitude or even aggression. But as we've listened to Jesus' words today, I don't think we should be surprised. In fact, we should probably expect it. That if our children or our loved ones show indifference or attitude towards your testimony to Jesus, don't be surprised. Don't think that you failed as a Christian mother or father. We can't change people's hearts, even our children's, as much as we might want to. Only God's Spirit can do that. And that's why we keep praying for God to work in their hearts as we keep witnessing to them about Jesus. But we shouldn't be surprised when it's hard. Testifying about Jesus at work is also hard. Talking about Jesus with people who aren't Christian, it feels weird. Uh, we're just not used to talking with work colleagues about anything that's not uh, work-related or probably quite superficial. 
Sometimes even with close friends, there can be an invisible wall around parts of our lives that we think of as particularly Christian, so we don't talk about them. And, and at one level, it's understandable, because more and more, there can be costs to identifying in Christian, as a Christian. But I think this morning's passage, Jesus challenges that attitude to be ready to tell people about him. Not because it won't be as bad as you think. Jesus is clear to expect casualties. But he still calls his followers to testify. Um, one particular book that I found helpful, which I accidentally left at my desk at home, uh, is a book called 40 Rockets. Uh, it's published by Matthias Media. It's quite cheap. I think it's under $10. And at the moment, they've got a 30% off sale. So it's even less. Um, and you know that a book called 40 Rockets, 40 Tips to Turbocharge Your Evangelism, you know it's going to be a bit cheesy. Uh, some of the ideas you might read and go, uh, that's one that's not for me, not in this context. But, you know, that might springboard into a different idea. And a lot of the other ideas in there are good. It's particularly focused on the workplace. But I do know uh, parents who've said, you know, there's actually good ideas for how I can keep witnessing to my kids as well in there. I think the temptation for most of us when we face attitude or indifference, whether it's at home or at work, will be something that's broadly either fight or flight. You know, to respond towards attitude, to testifying to Jesus with either our own attitude or just by shutting down and saying, you know, I'm just not even going to try anymore. But we need to consider uh, that the way we behave, that our testimony helps people to see Jesus more clearly. And Jesus calls us to a disposition that seeks to keep testifying to him because it's only by trusting in him that people will move from death to life. Doesn't mean we don't think carefully about how to do that. Indeed, we should think carefully about how to do that with the individuals we're trying to testify to. But here, Jesus gives us a good foundation to be confident and not respond to hostility and casualties with our own aggression or by giving up. Firstly, because even in the face of hostility, God's plans are continuing to advance. And as we point people to the Jesus of the Gospels, God's spirit is at work. We're not alone in the task. This morning, as we've listened to Jesus prepare his disciples for life after he's gone, Jesus has reminded them they're going to be living in hostile territory. But in the midst of that territory, they are to keep testifying to him. It'll attract hostility, it'll attract casualties, but be encouraged. Amidst the challenges, God is fulfilling his purpose of the spirit-empowered message of the gospel to go out so that people would be convicted of their guilt and might have life in Jesus' name. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you. We thank you for your spirit. We thank you that it shows us all that you have done for us on the cross. And it shows us our guilt so that we might turn and trust in you. We pray that as we live in hostile territory, you'd help us to keep testifying to you. That you'd help us not to give up, not to respond with our own aggression uh, unhelpfully, but to keep thinking about what it looks like to testify to you, to the people that you've placed around us, that they might have life in Jesus' name. Amen.